The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. It's a holiday here in the States this week, a holiday where families get together, but where old wounds can be brought up around the dinner table and fights can reemerge. In some ways, we can regress back to old habits and behaviors when we come together with our family during the holidays, which of course also means it can trigger old or current anxieties in us. So I thought it was the perfect time to revisit a conversation from a few years back I had with Kathleen Smith, PhD, practitioner of Bowen Family Systems Theory and an associate faculty member of the Bowen Center for Study of the Family. Family systems theory is a lens through which to see the world that I have found helpful, not only over the Thanksgiving table, but in the workplace. You might be surprised how much overlap there really can be between the way we were raised, the role we played within our families, and how we act at work. Maybe you're the classic overfunctioner who takes care of everything, for example. I definitely am. We'll talk more about that, but we'll start with Kathleen giving us a bit more insight into what exactly family systems theory is. Yeah, so it has many names, Bowen theory, Bowen family systems theory. Some people just use family systems theory, but uh, it was sort of the origins of family psychotherapy. There was a guy who's a psychiatrist, Dr. Murray Bowen, and he he wanted to turn human behavior into a science. Pretty ambitious, still hasn't happened. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was trained in psychoanalysis like most psychiatrists, you know, in those times. And he began to sort of observe how families and other groups of people operate as emotional systems and that there was a way to kind of demystify the human. You know, we like to think of ourselves as very unique in the animal kingdom and <laughs> very mysterious. But if you really pay attention to how we operate in the workplace, at home, wherever, we do some pretty predictable things. And the more you can observe those, the better chance you have of acting outside of them, of being a little bit more thoughtful in how you operate in your day-to-day -day life. And it depersonalizes it. It makes it less about who's a villain, who's a hero, and it's just humans doing human things. And that helps me out a lot in my day-to-day -day life. So I latched onto it and am just still learning about it. What does it mean to be in a system, in a family, or in any group of people? Yeah, you know, so much of psychology, mental health is focused on the individual. But Dr. Bowen had this idea that the basic building block is not the individual. It's the family or it's the group of people who've come together to sort of do a certain task or live together. This idea that we're social creatures mm -hmm. and we are all working together to manage stress, to manage anxiety, to overcome challenges. And so we do that not just as individuals, but as a group, and that there are certain mechanisms or patterns of behaving that, for better or worse, 
keep things stable. <laughs> but when you rely on them too much, then the wheels start to fall off the wagon. Then you have symptoms and problems and other things that pop up. My life kind of changed when I realized that people who I had a lot of conflict with in my life triggered me in a way, but I triggered them and that it wasn't just they're horrible and bad and I'm an angel, which is, you know, a very kind of childish way of thinking. But when you're in a negative relationship, it can be very comforting to think that way. Absolutely. It's very stabilizing. And that's why families, <laughs> workplaces, you know, communities, you name it, we love to sort of choose who's the problem and, and just focus on them. What personally drew you to this work in your life? Well, part of it's just a logistical thing. You know, I was a, an anxious grad student who needed to find a, an internship placement and <laughs> needed to pick a theory that was useful for me uh, in my clinical practice. And I heard about this sort of strange place in Washington, D.C. called the Bowen Center for the study of the family. It used to be a part of Georgetown. And they told me, well, you can come to your internship here, but you have to work on yourself in your family for a year before we'll let you. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, it meant working with somebody who is a family systems coach, reading about the theory, participating in a training program, and, you know, meeting with them regularly to think about sort of how my family operated, what was the multi-generational history, and what was my part in it. I began to see how automatically I operated in my day-to-day -day life and in my relationships. And I began to see a lot more wiggle room in what I could do. <laughs> and it made a huge difference. You know, I didn't calm down right away. Things usually get more anxious when you start to change. But it was just a, a lens of seeing the world and seeing relationships that I didn't have before. And that was incredibly useful for me. Can you give an example of an automatic reaction that you noticed? Oh, yeah, sure. So my mom died when I was in college. And mm -hmm. I sort of from that point began to immediately overfunction for my dad. You know, <laughs> I was giving advice, taking control, being very focused, you know, on my dad instead of, you know, just letting my father surprise me and function for himself. And when I began to sort of step back and focus on myself and focus on just the one-to-one -one relationship, things calmed down. You know, I saw that my father was much more capable than I assumed. And that was really useful for me. I want to focus on three concepts from the framework of Bowen theory, and I want to apply them specifically to the workplace and to leadership and really come to the place of understanding what I think you call anxious leadership. But the thing that I think will ring true for so many listeners is the idea of the overfunctioning leader. <laughs> Why don't we start by defining what overfunctioning is? And maybe you could give us some examples of how people overfunction in the workplace. Absolutely. So this goes back to what we were just chatting about a minute ago, you know, that there are these mechanisms that a system of people, an emotional system, a relationship system, whatever you want to call it, use to manage anxiety to kind of stabilize itself. And these are present in the nuclear family. These are present you know, in other arenas in society, it's certainly the workplace as well. And one of these dynamics or mechanisms is sort of for one person to become more responsible, mm -hmm. and then other people or persons to become less responsible. This is how people 
sort of one person or a group of people get identified as the problem, the patient, what needs to be fixed, what needs to change, right? And they often do worse when we identify them as such. <laughs> it's not usually helpful for them. So if, if we expect them to fail, they do? Not surprising, right? right. <laughs> and the person who is sort of over-functioning or being over-responsible they tend to do pretty well. They gain sort of a pseudo strength or a pseudo maturity by directing or controlling others. And it's easy to look at a person in leadership who's over-functioning and think they're doing really well or see them as really capable, whereas it's sort of a uh, like I said, a pseudo strength that if they don't, <laughs> if they aren't able to direct others or if others don't go along with it all of their capability kind of, you know, has a steep decline, <laughs> a rapid decline, that we are sort of propped up in our own functioning by acting as if other people are an extension of ourselves by functioning for them. And often, you know, that is what leads to burnout. It's not necessarily a sustainable position for the long term for a lot of folks, or they find that, you know, it definitely has a price when others become less capable or, or more frustrating when we overfunction for them. And so I think a lot of people in leadership positions took on this role in their families. They mm -hmm. tend to be people who are oldest children, maybe only children, or people who functioned as oldest children in their families. They tend to gravitate toward that in the workplace as well, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I was reflecting on my own tendency to overfunction, thinking about how when my dad left, you know, and it was my mom and my sister and I, every time we take the trash out, and I was a little kid, I would like wheel up the giant toter with recycling up our very hilly driveway. And we called me toter woman, even though I might have been nine years old. And I saw that as a metaphor for my lifelong tendency to just dive in and fix things. You know, like no one else is going to take out the trash. I can do it, even though I'm nine years old and the recycling bin is bigger than me. <laughs> you know, you know, what's interesting about it is that we often want to focus on the people who are having the hard time, the people who have the, quote, symptoms. But often it's harder for the person who is under functioning to change their position. It is a little bit easier for the person <laughs> who is taking on more to step back, to think more flexibly about what their responsibility is, what it isn't. So often those are the people I love to have, you know, in the therapy room or my office because they have a little bit of wiggle room to think about how they operate in the system. But often it's the underfunctioner or the person with the quote problem that people want to focus on or, or, or send to counseling or send to the consultant, right? <laughs> so an, oh, this is, sounds silly, but an overfunctioner needs to have an underfunctioner to react with. Exactly. Because if you don't, it's just conflict, right? <laughs> if, if, if both people think the other person needs to change, that's conflict, right? But when one person is focused on everyone else, and they sort of accept that, then you have this sort of seesaw dynamic. What if you get two overfunctioners on a team? Oh, I mean, that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> this happened at my wedding. We, I think about that. My husband and I asked a lot of our friends and family to help out with tasks. Mm -hmm. And we put two alphas or two overfunctioners at the same task. And you can guess what happened. Right? <laughs> there was a little bit of conflict. I mean, manageable conflict. It's humorous in hindsight. But I think that does happen a lot in the workplace as well. When you have two people who function in the same position or way in their family, all of a sudden, 
you're going to have conflict or one person has to to function a little bit differently. How do people tend to realize that they're overfunctioning and it's something that they could actually work on? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I hope that people I work with realize that when they're in coaching or therapy. Mm. <laughs> but I think, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think it does lead to burnout. Is that why they're in therapy? I guess the question is like, what brings them in your office? <laughs> a couple things. I think the people you overfunction for mm-hmm. tend to become less capable, more symptomatic, or they begin to push back and then you, <laughs> you know, mm. you're not overfunctioning anymore, right? You're just, you're fighting with them. Or, you know, they're often burnt out or they begin to develop symptoms, you know, physical, mental health symptoms of their own that are more of a challenge when they were before. I mean, the idea is that the more you dial up the stress or the anxiety, the the more locked in these mechanisms are, like over and under functioning, but the more quickly they fail us. You can't sort of get by with doing what you normally do without some problems or symptoms popping up. So that might lead us to the process of differentiation. Can you talk about what that is and why it's important to think about if you're hearing yourself in this? Yeah. So when Dr. Bowen was looking at families or organizations or even society as a whole, he sort of noticed that there were these two variables that affected how people functioned or how well the family was doing. And one of them was just the level of chronic anxiety, right? Just the amount of stress and reactivity the family was experiencing. But the second was that even in the same family, they tended to vary in how well they were doing, you know, (laughs) how capable they were of thinking and acting for themselves in the midst of great pressure or great fear of pushback. And the idea was that those individuals had or sort of emerged with a higher level of what he called differentiation of self, you know, the ability to think and act for yourself while in emotional contact with other people. And this is something amazingly that is changeable. <laughs> it, it can be, it's fixed to a degree, but I think there's a lot of, of room for change in the individual and what we know about how the brain can change over time, even as we age, that you actually are not locked into these mechanisms 100%. If you can begin to observe them, you have an opportunity to step back and ask yourself, is this really what I want to (laughs) do? You know, when the chips are down, like, is there a different, more flexible, more creative way of responding to an anxious person, to a challenging colleague, to an impossible family member? And can I play around with that and try that out and see if it makes a difference? And can I put up with the discomfort of not doing what I normally do? And so that's sort of what it means to kind of work on one's own differentiation, to operate a little bit outside of the emotional system Mm -hmm. while still being in the thick of it. Can you give us an example? For an overfunctioner, maybe if you're thinking about your marriage, right? If you say that your, you know, husband is not doing a chore he needs to be doing, like taking out the trash or something, right? And your automatic response is to either do it for him, to snap at him and direct him and tell him how to do it. You know, those are sort of the predictable responses, right? And sort of what does a differentiated response look like that? How do you manage your own reactivity? Does that mean putting up with the way he does it differently and just learning to manage yourself? Does that mean being curious about the problem and asking what his thinking is about it? It's not 
a clear solution. It's just about putting the front part of your brain into the mix and being willing to sort of disengage with with how you usually operate. Well, it's mindfulness too, right? Instead of diving into the automatic reaction, which is, God damn it, no one does anything around here. I guess I'll just have to do it myself and take out the trash and then being in a bad mood and being crummy, right? Which might be a very comfortable reaction because you feel really superior. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and we tend to think of mindfulness as a solo endeavor, Mm. but it really isn't. You know, if you can't do it in challenging relationships, then what's the point? You know, (laughs) because we're social creatures, you know, we, it's easy to access your thinking maybe when you're on a meditation retreat or (laughs) after a yoga class. But what about, you know, when your kid's screaming in the background or when your mother's, you know, lecturing you about something? That's a whole different ballgame. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid. And he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Can you share an example from the workplace of someone differentiating themselves? So many people, they fall into this over-functioning position and they treat their colleagues, you know, their, their underlings as an extension of themselves, you know? And so I've, I've worked with a lot of people who begin to see how that, I think of it as sort of as a Venn diagram. There's so much togetherness in the workplace. We act as if we know everyone's thinking or what everyone should do, or we act as if our thinking isn't important, you know? So the people who can begin to strive to know the thinking of others, the people who can slow down and let people do things less efficiently than they might. The example I gave with my dad, I think that opens up the space for you to be surprised by other people's capabilities. uh, And that allows for other people to step up. I mean, those are very, very general examples. But it often it's simple as stopping to ask someone what they think or what their experience has been, or the willingness to take a stand or a position on an issue when there might be pushback and learning to manage yourself in the middle of that versus just sort of distancing or, or avoiding the challenge altogether. It's sort of a willingness to shut off that autopilot and respond in a different way. I'm thinking about how moods and anxiety is contagious too, and that 
I think we've all had the experience of being in a relationship with someone, whether it's a workplace or a personal, and they're very worried and anxious. And then we pick it up for them and we carry it for them. And, and so now we're both anxious and stewing. And I'm curious if learning to be differentiated can almost inoculate you from absorbing those moods. To a degree, you know, mm. we'll never be robots. We'll, right. <laughs> it'll always be allergic to a degree. I work with a lot of clergy people and it's, you know, they're some of the most over-functioning people you can find, right? They're, they're naturally drawn to helping people. I'd throw therapists into this mix as well, you know, and it is interesting to see how when people begin to focus on managing themselves in a crisis, mm -hmm. self-regulating their own anxiety, how that is so much more of a, re that makes them so much more of a resource to their congregation, to their, their patients or clients than focusing on sort of calming the flock, calming the person in the room, you know, when your focus is outward. And I think that that is a variable you actually can control a little bit. Everyone else's intensity, you know, good luck with that. But that's, that's what we tend to do, right? We tend to want to calm others in order to manage ourselves. And I think in a leadership position, that's so easy to fall into. You know, one of the things that you talk about in the context of being a leader is thinking about how much discomfort you can tolerate, how many hard feelings you can tolerate in the process of becoming differentiated, right? How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they call it the A's. I talk about this a little bit in a book. I can't remember what they all are off the top of my head. It's something like agreement, approval, attention. Assurance, I think. Assurance, right. And so if you're a leader whose functioning is propped up by receiving these things, you are incredibly sensitive. One of my clients said this once, he said, exquisitely tuned <laughs> into changes in the mood or the anxiety of the group, right? And that really sets you up to chase after everyone and try and manage their <laughs> If you are able to evaluate yourself, your functioning, not just based on people's reactions to you, yeah. I think that does kind of inoculate you a little bit against the the day-to-day -day changes and just, you know, the level of anxiety in the workplace or in the office. You talk about anxious leadership. What does anxious leadership look like? And, and how do you know if either you're an anxious leader or you're being led by one? You know, all leadership is anxious to a degree, simply because we're human and we're anxious. Yes. <laughs> but I think of anxious leadership as an increased reliance on what Dr. Bowen called the emotional process, but that's just a fancy term for these mechanisms that we use to calm things down. And so a person who is perhaps less differentiated is going to be more reliant on overfunctioning or distancing or triangles. These are things, these are things I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. But to not be so hard on people, it's not just how differentiated you are. It's also how much anxiety is just in the room. You know, even the most emotionally mature person, if they are not paying attention, they're going to revert to this anxious style of leadership, these automatic ways of functioning, because it works to a degree. They're adaptive. We have evolved to have these ways of behaving in groups. I don't think of it as dysfunctional. I just think of it as limiting it mm -hmm. because it is automatic and it's not particularly 
creative. What does it look like? What are, what are some ways that it typically manifests that you see in your clients? Yeah, I think it tends to look like becoming over responsible for people. So the over functioning, I think it can also look like becoming distant, hmm. not being willing to sort of develop one to one relationships with people. It can look like, you know, these triangles relying on focusing on other people or gossiping or venting to others as a way of man, you know, you go home to your spouse, or you, you go to <laughs> your therapist or your supervisor, right, and venting or complaining to them becomes your way of managing things. And so these are all things that we do as humans. But I think the more anxiety you have, the less person to person contact you have, you really sort of are, are working on autopilot. I want to talk about pleasing and seeking assurance, because I think that's also a lot of anxious achievers I know, sort of, that's our love language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm super guilty on that one. That was my my whole mode of operating. Is, is that also from a, a lack of a sense of, let's talk about self actually first, self in the systems definition and why those of us who just love praise might want to rethink our relationship with ourself. Yeah. So that's kind of what is called the functional self. So you can't look at a person and how they're doing and see how mature they are. Some of us are really good at appearing more mature than we actually are. And that's because what sort of in both theories called kind of the pseudo self, we prop ourselves up with feedback, mm -hmm. assurance, approval, praise, attention from other people. And, you know, a person with a great encouraging boss, you know, it's not surprising their functioning is probably going to be better than a boss who's, who's a little bit more in, indifferent or less focused on them, right. <laughs> or is, is focusing their animosity towards them. Right. And again, it's not good or bad, but it is useful to think about how have I not learned to evaluate my own functioning because other people have been willing to do it for me. And what is so magical about everyone else's thinking versus my own, right? Can I not be too easy on myself, not too hard on myself either? What is my criteria for a good day, a good week, a good life? Can I be honest and objective about how productive I can actually be given the reality of today? These are all wonderful skills to have. Many of us just don't take the time to work on them because it feels better <laughs> to hear it from someone else. You know, I work in DC and so many people function this way in, in the city. And, but then a person loses their job, they get a, a boss they don't like, they have a challenging person they're supervising, there's just anxiety in the organization. And then all of a sudden their mood and functioning become a roller coaster. You know, you're not getting because the approval. Outside forces. Yeah, you're not getting the approval and the attention. You become depressed you become less productive, you become more reactive towards others, more distant from them. And uh, it's, it's pretty predictable. And so while the highs can feel really great, you do set yourself up to have a lot of, a lot of variation in your functioning over time. Well, one of the things that I thought was so practical that you talked about, and I'm really working on personally, is learning to evaluate your own work on its merits before asking for someone else's opinion. That felt so both counterintuitive to me, but also made a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, there's so much out there about building self-confidence and how to do that. And, and I think of it more as just objectivity, you know, and no one can be 100% objective, obviously. But 
we are capable of asking ourselves, what needs work here? What did I do pretty well? What are things I want to keep thinking about and plugging away at, you know? And I think that being able to kind of do that practice daily, weekly, after a big presentation or meeting, before your maybe annual performance review or something Mm. that really strengthens that muscle of objectivity. And I think that that helps a lot with self-criticism and with sensitivity to criticism from others. It's less fun. You know, I work for myself, so I don't, (laughs) I don't have a boss who's praising me, which I think is really good for me to, because it's, you know, kind of forced me to get real with myself about what I can do and what I can't and what needs work. But I think if you are in a workplace or an environment where people are throwing a lot at you and you do get a lot of feedback, or maybe you wish you had more feedback, I think it's a great thing to work on. So how could you get to a place? Because also what you're talking about is I think what you call undeveloped beliefs. You know, it's almost that lack of a core of this is what good work looks like for me. This is what I stand for. This is when I know I've put in a good day's work, even if someone else disagrees. And your beliefs are changeable based on other people's moods and reactions, right? I think that so many of us can relate to that growing up in a family where we would come home from school in a good mood and someone in the house was in a terrible mood. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, I shouldn't be in a good mood. I'm not good. What advice do you have for someone who wants to start to develop that sense of real self and what their definition of good work is and be less malleable, I guess, but from other people. Obviously, the first thing I would say is, you know, go to therapy, go to coaching. Yes. <laughs> think about this with someone else maybe is, is a help. But also, I think just asking yourself, this goes back to the pseudo self, the part of yourself, the beliefs that are negotiable or that change based on who's in the room or (laughs) how people are reacting to you. Right. And so to ask yourself, which of my beliefs have been really negotiable or tend to fluctuate, you know, day to day. And I think most people would find that that most of our beliefs are pretty negotiable. We like to think we're all principled people, but (laughs) we'll adopt a belief or change pretty quickly. If we can sense that somebody we care about or somebody we like uh, is going to be unhappy with us. So (laughs) I think for me, you know, I, I think this goes back to social media as well. You know, I'll look at, I don't know, people I went to grad school with or other strangers on the internet I've never even met and things that they're working on or that are important to them, I'll go, well, why why should be doing that? Why haven't I been doing that? And yet I'll know that it's not actually important to me at all. It's not a value that I have. It's not something I want to work. (laughs) But just being in the presence of another person changes my thinking about whether that's important or not, right? And it's so easy to just kind of get scooped up into that, that thinking. And so being able to sit down and ask yourself, well, how do I value? What do I think a good work looks like? What is important to me? What is not? What do I want to be responsible for? What is not my responsibility? And obviously that thinking will change over time. But if you aren't able to describe what it is you're trying to do, then there's not a lot of hope of actually being able to pull it off. That segues perfectly into the last thing I want to talk about with you, which is about curiosity. And you say that curiosity in many ways is an antidote to anxiety. Why and how? Yeah, absolutely. It's a a willingness to sort of use that front part of your brain, you know, the part that sets goals, that's sort of naturally interested in things and solves problems that strives for objectivity, right? 
And it is a willingness to kind of, Dr. Bowen described it as sort of being at the top of a stadium or maybe up in the press box when a, a football game or something like that is going on and being able to sort of see how people function in relationship to each other. Because we don't get that view most of the time when we're personalizing everything and blaming ourselves or blaming other people, right? But a willingness to sort of put your researcher hat on when you go to work or when you go home for Thanksgiving and say, let's see how this thing works. Let's see what's my part in it. And let me tinker around with that and see if it makes a difference, you know, in the short term and the long term you know, a willingness to, to not be so hard on yourself and to see that, you know, at least this, this idea of, you know, the relationship system as the basic unit to kind of cut yourself some slack that we, as humans, we've evolved and adapted to have ways of relating to each other. And they aren't good or bad. They're just limiting when we don't put our own brains into the mix. And I think people who are curious and interested have a much better chance of, first of all, operating differently, but also, you know, not being so hard on themselves. Kathleen, I'd love to hear an example from real life of someone maybe you've worked with who realized that they were working in a chronically anxious system and and examined their own role in it. Yeah, I have a, a client who's a pastor and he for a long time, you know, liked to think of his congregation as sort of a very mature group of people. You know, there'd be challenges, but it wasn't like other churches or congregations who tended to squabble all the time. But, you know, he began to learn a little bit about Bowen theory and he realized that, you know, a lot of the the people in the church, including himself, wouldn't ever really take a stand on anything. You know, if somebody had an idea or, you know, a thought, they kind of just went along with it and let people do whatever they wanted. And I think he realized over the long term, this group of people coming together didn't really have a a clarity of purpose, you know, or was less able to take a stand, a, a position on important issues. And I think that he also, you know, would admit that he struggled with that himself. And I think that this, this is such a good example. I think this can happen in a lot of workplaces too, right? That people can seem to be getting along. There's not a lot of conflict, right? But there's also maybe not a lot of progress or, you know, output either. Mm -hmm. And that is just because people are so focused on not rocking the boat Mm -hmm. and what's called sort of going along to get along, right? That it wasn't, you know, that they were less effective. And people who are able to work on differentiation, to put up with the anxiety of the moment, to take a stand on something, (laughs) to share their thinking when it might not be welcomed, right? That, you know, that is a sign of maturity, of differentiation. So I think that just goes with you can't just look at how calm a group is and assume that it's functioning well, right? (laughs) That work is getting done, right? Because maybe everybody is just so distant and so, you know, walking on eggshells and just kind of going with whatever, maybe because, you know, these people operated that way in their families. I don't know. (laughs) But, um, you know, a calm group can also be a group that's just using these, these mechanisms, but nothing's really happening, right? And so just because there's anxiety doesn't mean that something isn't happening, right? There's this anxiety that comes with 
progression that comes with maturity. And so if you're thinking about operating differently in a leadership position or at work, I think you should expect and anticipate that because you're doing something differently than you would normally do. How do you gently rock the boat without freaking everyone out? (laughs) Well, I think first it's just getting clear with yourself about what you actually think, right? We tend to want to just sometimes charge in there and take a stand on something. But it's often it's not about what you say. It's about how you're functioning and how you're behaving differently. You don't have to announce to the group, you know, or you don't, you don't have to announce to your spouse, hey, I've decided I'm not going to pick your clothes up. <laughs> you can just stop doing it and see how it's fun. You know, you don't have to say to a colleague, hey, I've been picking up the slack for you too much. I'm going to stop doing that. You know, sometimes that that needs to be a conversation, but often I think it's much more subtle. (laughs) It's sort of readjusting yourself, not trying to teach everyone else how to function or how to handle you, but just focusing on managing your own anxiety and let people, let other people see what they can do with themselves. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. 